0: just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. If you've been following along with this season's series, you'll know that my ancestors are the ones guiding this story. Sometimes I forget and think that I'm in charge, which is what happened this week when I sat down with the episode outline to see what I'd planned to discuss and noted that it was about the role of the visionary experience in religion. And actually, that is what we're going to talk about today. But my ancestors sent me in a slightly different direction. They pointed me to a book I read last year and then began to show me the connections between ancient religions and Mormonism and I began to see how much ancient wisdom is hiding right in plain sight in the church. I wonder if the modern church leadership even knows that it's there, but I don't wanna get ahead of myself, or rather my ancestors. This is their story, and I'm letting them tell it the way they wanna tell it. I've been saying that this season is focused on following one branch of my family tree to explore what happens when a group of people leave the only land they've ever known for the promise of salvation and eternal life in heaven. But the further down this rabbit hole I follow them, the more I wonder if that's the story at all. I'm not completely sure where they're taking us, but it has been fascinating so far. So I hope you'll forgive me for not yet knowing our destination on this journey. I'm along for the ride just like you are, so thanks for joining me. In the end, I hope it might inspire you on your own ancestral journey. And if you do feel inspired to go deeper and want to support the work that it takes to bring this podcast to life, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earth Tenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. And
1: so you get rid, you create order within this sacred space of a stone temple that's built with a double square. And looking further, you'll find many chapels, cathedrals from the Middle Ages throughout uh, England and, and, and Europe, were double squares. And they were specifically multiples of 72 feet. And so there's actually a relationship between, you know, the uh, measurement of a foot and the speed at which air, uh, sound propagates through air at certain temperatures. So there's this, there's more to the the old measuring systems than a lot of people realize that it was very much had to do with uh, acoustical properties and you know, what's been called sacred geometry. And the sacred geometry fundamentally uh, has to do with this five-point star configuration. And within that, a double square that can be uh, formed. And you'll see, for instance, the King's Chamber and the Great Pyramid is, is a double square. You'll find double square is used in all... I mean, it was it was central to Solomon's Temple, and thus you'll find double squares used in the, in the Mormon temples exclusively, and uh, also in most at least classical uh, organized Masonic lodges, because both Mormonism and Masonry are connected to the legends and the various mystery schools around the Temple of Jerusalem or Solomon's Temple. And so there is this, this understanding of the sacred space that is connected to this ordering geometry of Venus in the sky. And uh, it uh, amazingly produces a sacred space that has certain acoustical properties.
0: We left off last week with the fall of the Roman Empire and the end of the Eleusinian mysteries. And while I thought yet again that we would be heading to Scandinavia this week, my ancestors had other ideas. This week, the Amanita muscaria mushroom came into my dreams, and then my ancestors began to dictate this episode to me. And like I said, we weren't headed where I thought we were. In fact, they want to continue talking about religion and the tradition of visionary experiences. So they directed me back to Richard Merrick's book, The Venus Blueprint, And although I read it last year and have shared about some of the concepts he's written about on the podcast before, I saw it with totally new eyes after learning what I have about the Mormon church. Although the book doesn't mention Mormonism at all, I found the 2014 recording of Richard you just heard discussing the sacred geometry of many early churches and temples, and he makes the connection you just heard about the Mormon temples reflecting the same geometry. And I think, as my ancestors are guiding us on this tour through ancient religious history, there's a lot to discuss here. Because I'm not so sure that Joseph Smith knew quite what he was patterning the church after when he was linking it to Solomon's temple. Or maybe he did. I guess we'll never know for sure. But knowing how the church unfolded in the years after he wrote the Book of Mormon and prior to his death, I just don't think he knew the intricacies of what was being worshipped in the old days. Because if he'd really wanted to bring the old mystery schools back into modern times, women would have been the centerpiece of his religion. They would have been allowed to hold the priesthood and confer blessings, just as the men do. But we'll get to that in a bit. First, let's talk about Solomon's Temple. What is it that so many religions or mystery schools have sought to continue or recreate over thousands of years? Well, the crowning achievement of King Solomon's reign was the erection of a magnificent temple in Jerusalem, the capital city of ancient Israel. His father, King David, had wanted to build the great temple a generation earlier as a permanent resting place for the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the 10 commandments. A divine edict, however, had forbidden him from doing so. It said, you will not build a house for my name, God said to David, for you are a man of battles and have shed blood. This is in 1 Chronicles 28.3. So his son Solomon built the temple during his reign and spared no expense for the building's creation. He ordered vast quantities of cedar wood from King Hiram of Tyre, had huge blocks of the choicest stone quarried, and commanded that the building's foundation be lain with hewn stone. To complete the massive project, he imposed forced labor on all of his subjects, drafting people for work shifts that sometimes lasted a month at a time. Some 3,300 officials were appointed to oversee the temple's erection. Solomon assumed such heavy debts in building the temple that he was forced to pay off King Hiram by handing over 20 towns in the Galilee. When the temple was completed, Solomon inaugurated it with prayer and sacrifice, and even invited non-Jews to come and pray there. Sacrifice was the predominant mode of divine service in the temple until it was destroyed by the Babylonians some 400 years later in 586 BC. Seventy years after that, a number of Jews returned to Israel, led by the prophets Ezra and Nehemiah, and the second temple was built on the same site. Sacrifices to God were once again resumed. During the first century BC, Herod, the Roman appointed head of Judea, made substantial modifications to the temple and the surrounding mountain, enlarging and expanding the temple. The second temple, however, met the same fate as the first and was destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE, following the failure of the Great Revolt. As glorious and elaborate as the temple was, its most important room contained almost no furniture at all. Known as the Holy of Holies, it housed the two tablets of the Ten Commandments inside the Ark of the Covenant. Unfortunately, the tablets disappeared when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, and therefore during the Second Temple era, the Holy of Holies was reduced to a small, entirely bare room. Once a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter this room and pray to God on behalf of the Israelite nation. A remarkable monologue by a Hasidic rabbi in the Yiddish play, the book, conveys a sense of what the Jewish throngs worshipping at the temple must have experienced during the ceremony. God's world is great and holy. The holiest land in the world is the land of Israel. In the land of Israel, the holiest city is Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the holiest place was the temple, and in the temple, the holiest spot was the holy of holies. There are 70 peoples in the world. The holiest among these are the people of Israel. The holiest of the people of Israel is the tribe of Levi. In the tribe of Levi, the holiest are the priests. Among the priests, the holiest was the high priest. There are 354 days in the lunar year. Among these, the holidays are holy. Higher than these is the holiness of the Sabbath. Among Sabbaths, the holiest day is the day of atonement, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. There are 70 languages in the world. The holiest is Hebrew. Holier than all else in this language is the Holy Torah. And in the Torah, the holiest part is the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, the holiest of all words is the name of God. Wow, that is quite the speech. And once during the year, at a certain hour, these four supreme sanctities of the world were joined with one another. That was on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and there utter the name of God. And because this hour was beyond measure of holy and awesome, it was the time of utmost peril, not only for the high priest, but for the whole of Israel. For if in this hour there had, God forbid, entered the mind of the high priest a false or sinful thought, the entire world would have been destroyed. I mean, no pressure or anything. But You can also see the pattern of religions trying to convince their parishioners that their religion is the best. There are others, yes, but they are the ones with the truth, and you should be honored to be part of the very best one. Honestly, it sounds a bit like the political rallies of the past few years, but that's a whole other story. What's important here to understand is how revered Solomon's temple was in large parts of the world. And wisdom held within the temple was passed down over generations to the Knights Templar, who had guarded the temple for some time, to the Rosicrucians, to the Freemasons, and to the Mormons. But what wisdom? Well, like all of these mysterious organizations, it's hard to know exactly. But but you have to go back to Hiram Abiff, who Cody Niconi mentioned in episode 73, Regarded by many as the first Freemason in history, it's said that Hiram Abiff initially inspired the secret organization into being. Many Freemasons and historians claim Hiram Abiff was the chief architect employed by King Solomon to build his temple in Jerusalem. And if this is true, that makes Freemasonry older than modern Christianity and Islam, which are two other Abrahamic religions in the world other than Judaism. Now, Hiram Abiff is the main character of a symbolic story told to all candidates during the third degree in Freemasonry. According to this story, Hiram Abiff arrived in Jerusalem as was appointed by King Solomon as the chief architect and master of works at the construction site of his temple. As the work comes to a completion, he is ambushed by three other stonemasons who ask him for the master mason's password and strike him on refusal with a Masonic tool. He's injured by the first two blows, and then the third blow kills him. The murderers hastily bury his body under a pile of rocks marked with a sprig of acacia. Now, this is an important symbol in the story, because the acacia tree was a widely known psychedelic at the time. A DMT-containing brew can be made from these trees. But back to Hiram's story. The next morning, the Master Mason's absence is immediately noticed. King Solomon sends out other masons to look for him, who later discover and dig up his body to be given a decent burial. Upon his burial, King Solomon remarks that the master mason's password is now lost forever. He replaces the signs and symbols used by masons to communicate with each other as a show of respect to Hiram Abiff. And that is how masonry begins. Now, it might be odd to think about today, but in order to be a master mason— And in this case, we're talking about stonemasons, the ones who actually built these early temples. They had to be students not just of geometry, but also of astronomy. How could you orient a temple to the sun, the moon, and the changing seasons without speaking the language of the stars? In a Freemasons Community article, it explains, the astronomical references in our degrees begin with the points of the compass, east, west, and south and the place of darkness, the north. We're taught that the reason why the north is a place of darkness by the position of Solomon's temple with reference to the ecliptic, a most important astronomical conception. The sun is the past master's own symbol. Our masters rule their lodges, or are supposed to, with the same regularity with the sun rules the day and the moon governs the night. Our explanation of our lesser lights is obviously an adaptation of a concept which dates back to the earliest of religions, specifically to the Egyptian Isis, Osiris, and Horus, represented by the sun, moon, and Venus. So, two important pieces here. The ecliptic he's referring to is the path the sun takes in our sky. In other words, the sun's movement across a backdrop of stars from our vantage point here on Earth. The article calls it a most important astronomical conception, and that's true. Every day, you see the sun arc across the sky from east to west. The moon follows the same path, as do each of the major planets in our solar system. Now, if you want to get started with stargazing, pay attention to the sun, the moon, and the planets for a while. Watch for a few days, a few weeks, months or years, and you'll begin to get a feel for the ecliptic in your sky. You'll notice the planets, sun and moon are always on or near the ecliptic plane. And you can use this line across your sky to help you find your way around, making your way between the constellations and the stars. You'll notice the sun's path, the ecliptic, higher in the sky during the summer months and lower during the winter. Eventually, you'll be able to imagine the sun's path in your sky long after the sun has set. When that happens, you'll be able to pick out a planet from a star very quickly and easily, which is a great party trick. Mars is the red one, Saturn the yellow one, Venus the bright white one that never gets too far from the sun, Mercury the seldom seen one, and Jupiter the very bright one, but never as bright as Venus, that often gets far from the sun kind of fun, right? But our ancestors all would have been able to do this, or some version of this. And if you had family members who were Masons, they for sure would have had the skill. Because astronomy is as important as geometry in Freemasonry. Now, to the other point where it mentions the Masonic symbol of the lesser lights as being a modification of a concept that dates back to the earliest religions, and that Isis, Osiris, and Horus are represented by the Sun, Moon, and Venus. As much as Masonry, Mormonism, and anything else patterned on the Temple of Solomon references Christian symbology and biblical stories, the true symbology is much, much older. And it's not worshiping God at all. At least, not the Christian God that we're all so familiar with. Which takes us back to Richard Merrick and the Venus Blueprint. He became interested in Rosslyn Chapel in Scotland after seeing a story about two people who had decoded music carved into the stone sculptures in the chapel and went to take a look for himself.
1: I ended up going over there, flying over there uh, after some preliminary analysis of uh, the chapel from a geometric point of view and, and symbolic point of view and found a lot of things that pointed to that chapel being a chapel to Venus, you know, to the goddess of Venus, in particular the Hebrew goddess of Venus, which was named the So I, I went over there and they took me uh, in and showed me, you know, uh, around and you know, explored uh, above and below ground, because it has a um, has a crypt below ground, that's sealed, but they have a sacristy that's next to it. And I noticed, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful place, and anybody who wants to just be completely blown away by what was going on in the 15th century and uh, the early Renaissance should go there and look at this place because it's a storybook in stone. But when I went down into the sacristy, I saw some etchings on the walls. And these are not carvings, but just uh, like they took some sharp implements and and etched some drawings uh, some of it was uh, astrological or astronomical, little stars and things like that, little pentagrams uh, indicating certain stars and places. And right across from where the opening of the crypt would be, if it weren't sealed, was a an etching of a tower that looked like a, an oil derrick a, a little bit, it looked like an oil derrick or an electrical tower, which seemed very sort of out of place to me, uh, very odd that there would be a tower that was carved in the 15th century that looked like something modern or quasi modern. So I took pictures pictures of it and from talking with with the Mitchells and some other people, you know, nobody really knew what that was or what it meant. Well when I came back came back home after the trip, I uh, started, I don't know, studying different things and I started with this idea that this was probably a, a chapel dedicated to the goddess of Venus, you know, and that the planet Venus had something to do with it. And there's lots of other things about the chapel that indicate that it, that Venus was a very significant part of it. I mean, Venus was the morning star and the evening star, and it rose before the sun in the morning, and uh, it was considered the resurrector of the sun. And so there's a whole cosmology behind that, you know, that Venus was actually The thing that sustained the sun and that uh, resurrected it it was a a sort of a mother figure.
0: That's right. One of the most famous Christian castles in Europe may actually be a monument to honor the goddess Venus. And who is this Hebrew goddess Asherah? Asherah, the Shekinah, consort and beloved of Yahweh, a.k.a. God. Therefore, she is God, the mother. Her sacred pillars or poles once stood right beside Yahweh's altar, embracing it. Moses and Aaron both carried one of these Asherah poles as a sacred staff of power. The children of Israel were once dramatically healed simply by gazing at the staff with serpents suspended from it. And yes, here again, we find the snakes and the staff. Asherah was widely known in the Middle Eastern ancient world as a goddess of healing and then she was removed from the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures around four or 500 BC. Judaism and then Christianity somehow managed to erase women from their equal standing with men within the church. Both religions have a masculine God and no goddess. Masculine priests and no priestesses. Christianity also has a masculine son of God. But where is the wife and mother? How is there a father and son in the perfect trinity, but somehow the Holy Ghost is not supposed to be the mother? No sacred feminine to balance the masculine and birth the child? The Bible gives the impression that all ancient Jews shared a common belief system, but the evidence paints a different picture. The Hebrew Jewish religion flourished for centuries in a region of intensive goddess cults. Archaeologists have uncovered Hebrew settlements where the goddess Asherah was routinely worshipped. For about 3,000 years, the Hebrews worshipped female deities, which were later eradicated only by extreme pressure of the male-dominated priesthood. And then there's the matter of the cherubim that sat atop the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Fashioned by Phoenician craftsmen for Solomon and Ahab, an ivory tablet shows two winged females facing each other. And one tablet shows male and female members of the cherubim embracing in an explicitly sexual position that embarrassed later Jewish historians. Even the pagans were shocked when they saw it for the first time. But this would have represented the union between masculine and feminine. The Star of David, two triangles embracing, became the coded symbol for god and goddess locked in a creating posture. So Venus was this feminine or mother figure in the sky, as Richard points out, with a whole cosmology around it, such that ancient people associated their goddesses with this planet. Now, the planet Venus is our closest planetary neighbor, and it's the brightest planet in the sky. She looks like a star with the naked eye, but unlike stars that emit their own light, Venus is a planet and reflects the light from the sun. She's the second planet closest to the sun and never ventures very far from the sun, from our perspective on Earth. Sometimes when she's very close to the sun, she gets lost in its glare and becomes invisible. And when she's at her furthest separation from the sun... Venus is so bright that she becomes the third brightest object in the sky, after the Sun and the Moon. Now, the orbit of Venus is inside the orbit of Earth. Unlike the outer planets, Venus is always relatively close to the Sun and the sky. When Venus is on one side of the Sun, it's trailing the Sun and the sky, and brightens into view shortly after the Sun sets, when the sky is dark enough for it to be visible. And now when Venus is at its brightest, it becomes visible just minutes after the sun goes down. This is when Venus is seen as the evening star. When Venus is on the other side of the sun, it leads the sun as it travels across the sky. Venus will rise in the morning a few hours before the sun. Then as the sun rises, the sky brightens and Venus fades away in the daytime sky. This is her as the morning star. The ancient Greeks and Egyptians thought that Venus was actually two separate objects. The Greeks called the morning star Phosphorus, or Lucifer, the bringer of light, or shining one. And they called the evening star Hesperos, the star of the evening, or western star. So when Venus transits the sun, the two rise together out of the eastern ocean. This was probably seen by our ancient relatives as a planetary mating, initiating the gestation process of sunlight, giving birth to the living creatures below on Earth. Venus was known to be central to life on Earth, bringing coherence, order, and stability during the formation of the solar system. And if you trace the pattern that Venus makes across the sky, you get the sacred geometry symbol, the Rose of Venus. Now, if you can't picture it in your mind, Google it real quick and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but I'll link a short video in the show notes so you can actually see how this pattern develops. Venus dances with the Earth across the sky to form a perfect geometry over an eight-year period. This happens because the difference in orbital speed between the Earth and Venus has a 13 to 8 ratio. This difference creates an Earth-Venus conjunction cycle, which creates the five points or petals in the symbol where Venus and Earth embrace. Sometimes the entire rose of Venus symbol is made into a simpler or shorthand symbol to represent those five petals. And that's the five-pointed star that's found in temples and churches all over the world. I was curious to know if Mormonism had included any of this symbology in their temples and decided to look at the Nauvoo Temple since it was the first big temple built, the original one in Kirkland being a bit more of a wooden meeting house. And sure enough, there you find on the outside of the Nauvoo Temple 30 pilasters with a sun at the top and a moon at the bottom and a star above each. Now, the church says on their website that they symbolize the sun breaking through the clouds to show the dawning of the restoration and the coming of gospel light to illuminate a dark earth. But knowing the much older references to the sun, moon, and Venus that were repeated again and again in the ancient temples, my sense is that it was an attempt to duplicate those religions, even if Joseph Smith didn't totally understand the symbology. But back to the 13 to 8 ratio between the earth and Venus. This ratio is nearly the golden ratio, or phi. The golden ratio, also known as the golden number, golden proportion, or the divine proportion, is a ratio between two numbers that equals approximately 1.618. Usually written as the Greek letter phi, it's strongly associated with the Fibonacci sequence, a series of numbers wherein each number is added to the last. The Golden Ratio could be considered God's secret for constructing the universe. You find it everywhere. It's the basis for the design of our bodies, for the natural world, and as we're discussing, even the solar system. So when you see the Rose of Venus or a five-pointed star in a church, they're referencing the hand of God in creation and the perfection of the universe. The marriage of the masculine and feminine to create life and beauty. Everything on earth is all in perfect order. And that's reflected back to us in the sky as well. The sun is the masculine heavenly sphere that illuminates the world and the source of all that exists in the universe. The moon is the feminine, the queen of the solar system, her movements governing the life of all earthly beings, including humans. And Shukra is the Vedic name for Venus. Shukra actually means semen, representing the power of fertility and reproduction inherent with this planet. And once you know the symbology, you begin to see it everywhere in religion. Sun, Moon, Venus. Father, son, Holy Ghost. It's the original trinity, and it does not exclude the feminine. In order to commune with these forces of nature, or with God, or the goddess, or divinity itself, you would go to these temples or churches with their perfect geometry patterned after the geometry of nature that surrounds us, take communion, and connect with the heavenly realms. And how did they do that? Well, you have to look at what was happening in religion before Christianity wiped out its competitors.
1: They're using music or harmon- and acoustics and harmonic science to modify human consciousness. And there are certain frequencies that do that. Uh, we don't have time here, I don't think, to go into it, but there are certain frequencies and certain tunings of uh, a space, of a sacred space, that will enhance meditative states and, and induce meditative states. I began to say, well, you know, what else were they doing in this space in, in order to modify the consciousness? And the minute you ask that question, then you immediately start looking at the
0: communion
1: drinks or, or breads that the, that would be taken as part of these religious ceremonies and rites. And to this day, we still have communions in Christian churches, but of course, it's either grape juice or wine. and the, the if you go back far enough, and you don't have to go that far in the Middle Ages, you began to start seeing that, oh, well, they were actually using some sort of entheogenic or psychoactive, uh, substance to induce visions. And that uh, this is what was going on in the temples. When you find uh, Roman Mithraeans, you know, for followers of Mithras, uh, they even had stone tubs along the edge filled with salt water, and they would take the, the offering from Mithras and it would it would be a, a psychoactive drink and they would literally get in the salt water and float and uh, have you know a psychedelic experience, see into heaven and so forth. Can you trace it further back, you find it through Babylon and egypt and, and you find it in all of the ancient religions
0: yes, the secret Roman cult of Mithras I mean. It's as secret as the Eleusinian mysteries are mysterious, but we know enough to put some of the important pieces together and infer what was going on. Before Christianity took hold across the Roman Empire, the cult or religion of Mithras was embraced by Roman soldiers in Persia, where the beliefs originated, and then it spread across the empire over about 300 years. Mithras was the god of the rising sun, and he maintained the orderly change of seasons and kept watch over the cosmic order. Worshippers met in stone underground spaces meant to mimic caves, and to get into the cult, you had to pass a series of initiations, a strict code of seven different tasks set by the priests of the order that the follower had to pass if he wished to advance further into the cult. Passing these tests also gave members the divine protection of various planetary gods. Now, some scholars believe that followers of Mithras celebrated him on December 25th each year, connecting him to the winter solstice and changing seasons. Unlike Christians marking the birth of Jesus, these celebrations would have been very private. The basis for this belief is that December 25th was also the Persian day of celebration for Sol, the sun god, with whom Mithras was closely linked. Of course, this timing also coincides closely with the winter solstice the darkest night of the year, after which the days begin to grow longer and the sun returns. Vedic texts are notable for the main ritual of the Mithraic cult, such as sacrificing a bull, which penetrated to Europe. One of the noblest gods is Soma, the god of invincible power, the god who cures all the diseases. It is Soma who gave life, wealth, and wish fulfillment. Soma is also the name of a sacred plant in the Rig Veda. A strong alcoholic beverage loved by the gods and dedicated to the gods was made from this plant. During rituals, priests drank this beverage in order to come close to and join with the gods. Soma was the life deity and life essence, and even though the gods received their eternity from this beverage, mortal men could attain temporary eternity by drinking the beverage too meaning they had the ability to join the realms of the gods when consuming this beverage. So as far as we can piece together, one of the main competitive religions to Christianity included initiation, secrecy, and entheogenic communion in a specially constructed temple. And it was only open to men. Ultimately, in the 4th century, followers of Mithras faced persecution from Christians who saw their cult as a threat. As a result, the religion was suppressed and disappeared within the Western Roman Empire by the end of the century. Okay, so back to Richard Merrick.
1: And you go back to um, look at the Rig Veda the and you find that Soma, which was the elixir of the gods, was a central element to Vedic cosmology and Vedic religion. And so the idea was they would take the communion. Of the teacher plant or the plant god, and it would allow their consciousness to leave its body and visit the the gods in the sky and That is the fundamental pattern of you know religious rites and belief systems that have been repeated in many different ways over the millennia at the bottom of it is this Use of plants or fungi to provide a bridge between or to relink human consciousness with the sun or more specifically the energy uh, that the sun represents, which would be God. So resonance was kind of an inside and outside thing. You take the communion to sort of resonate, wake up your, the energy in your body, the kundalini serpent would rise up through the body, through the chakras and into the brain and out the crown of the head, or the Vishnisha, as the Buddhists would call it, protuberance. And this inner resonance would then be further controlled or enhanced by the use of outer resonance, which would be chant and perhaps music within a resonant chamber which are these temples and chapels and so forth. Rosalind was the key for me to begin looking in the right directions. It does all of these things and more. It's like a compendium of all the religious rites and symbolisms of all times just put into this one part, into this one stone chapel. So it's a very good reference for us to link our modern way of thinking through a 15th century, you know, medieval chapel, Christian chapel, which was really a front for uh, a very ancient temple rites that go back to pre-Christian times.
0: Pretty incredible, right? Ancient wisdom continued to be integrated into the more modern religious beliefs for hundreds or even thousands of years. Or in the case of Rosslyn Chapel, the secrets of the old mystery schools were hidden right in plain sight. And what's interesting to me is that each different mystery school or cult or religion had their own system, but that system also included having a kind of monopoly on the special and theogenic brew of the region at that moment in time. And I mean, yes, anyone could participate in the Eleusinian Mysteries, but only one time, and the secrets could never be revealed. You could not, in this case, spread the message or share the recipe with others. Not that you were allowed to know the recipe in the first place. You could only tell people that it changed your life. And if your friends and family wanted that same life-changing experience, they had to go to the one place that they could have that experience. Now, Mithras excluded women altogether, as does Freemasonry. And the Mormons like to say that what happens in their temple isn't a secret, it's sacred. But you don't get to find out what's so sacred about it without becoming a member and hearing it directly from them. And then you're enlisted to spread the word to others and entice them to join the religion and learn the secrets. This idea of controlling access to the infinite wisdom of the universe or Access to the heavenly realms or salvation of your soul after death repeats itself in one religion after another pretty much from the dawn of time. They're the ones with the truth. They're the ones that can give you visions or the gift of speaking in tongues. If you want to be special or your soul to be saved, then you need them. Oh, and you also need their special and theogenic brew, which You may or may not know to be psychoactive, but you do know that it does whatever it is they promised and probably did change your life, or at least your perspective on life and death. But these psychedelic communions eventually began to be restricted even more tightly than just within certain religious groups and ceremonies.
1: I guess in the past, let's say, 1,500 years, the... Suppression of the use of psychoactive compounds in religious settings was very largely the result of, of the Roman Church outlawing, uh, psychoactive communions in, uh, around the fifth century. Pretty much right after the, the fall of the Roman Empire, early Christianity was competing with other mystery schools, the, you know, the, the worship of Sybil and Attis, as well as uh, Mithras, both of those were very popular and much more popular than Christianity in Rome, for instance, at that time. And by outlawing the use of those psychoactive communions, they were eliminating that, the the core of those religions, and they died out pretty quickly. That combined with some force, you know, it was very effective. <laughs> and so it was over time the Roman Church, you know, continued to, you know, they just saw no value at all in letting individuals have any kind of direct revelatory experience. And it didn't really start, you know, we could blame it all on the Roman Church, and certainly they deserve a lot of that, but it didn't just start with them. I mean, the Hebrew priests were outlawing the use of psychoactive compounds, you know, somewhere around, I think they from what I've been able to find somewhere around between three and four hundred BC, they began restricting the use of those kind of compounds or, or plants and so forth for the priests and then ultimately for just the high priest. And only once a year during Yom Kippur, you know, would those be, be used. Uh, so there's been a tendency for the priestly class to want to keep uh, all of that. That's magic stuff, secret, and the, for the laity to just depend upon the priest to tell them what they see. And that developed ultimately into uh, the holy books, like the Quran or the Torah, or the Bible, being that revelation, you know, all of those visions that these different people had and they compiled together and that have been selected and edited out over time as being Sufficient, and that people no longer need to have those kind of direct revelatory experiences if they just believe, you know, in this particular thing. Same thing though for Hinduism and Buddhism. I mean, yes, there's still some Vedic priests that are doing doing some, you know, some sort of psychoactives at from t- at times at certain certain times of the year, certain rituals, and you know, there's even uh, some Zoro- Zoroastrians that are doing it as well, but it's not, even within those communities, it's not well understood or acknowledged. It's pretty much kept secret.
0: Yep. Secret, sacred, whatever label they wanted to use at the root of it was the reality that the people in power didn't want the average person to have a direct experience with God. And the easiest way to eliminate that was to eliminate the psychedelic communion. Because while there might be a small percentage of people who were willing to sit in a cave on a mountaintop for 30 days to fast and pray who may then receive visions, most church members would be unwilling or unable to do such a thing. And so removing plant medicine from religion slammed the door to God shut. Or maybe we should say pulled the veil between this world and the other non-ordinary world only to be pulled back by priests and prophets who were secretly using psychedelics to commune with the beings in those worlds and then pass the messages on to their parishioners who were told these men were somehow holier than the rest, the ones that God spoke with, the ones whose hands you had to place your soul's salvation into if you wanted to avoid the fiery bowels of hell or the realm of outer darkness where the evil and unenlightened resided the ones you needed to pay your tithes to if you wanted to have access to heaven. I mean, this whole situation sounds ripe for corruption, if you ask me, which, let's be honest, is exactly what's happened over the past 2,000 years. The ruling classes took a revelatory substance that humankind had relied on generation after generation and removed it from our consciousness while preserving it for themselves. And these plant medicines are precisely what assist us in sparking our curiosity in things like the geometry of nature and seeing patterns in the sky. While in these altered states, we're able to see the world around us as it really is and witness the perfection of its creation, of our creation. These experiences remind us that we're part of the whole, that God is within us and all around us. And I think that is what my ancestors wanted to point out in this episode that one religion or another has repeatedly cornered the market on our consciousness, which, of course, has extended to our government laws around the use of these plants today. And although there is a psychedelic renaissance underway right now, it runs the risk of becoming like the mystery schools or cults of the ancient times. That these plants may come back into our collective graces, but restricted only to those who can meet certain requirements, or pay the fees make the pilgrimage, and receive the sacred communion in a specially designed room by the priests of our modern age, psychiatrists and traditional medical doctors. Now, I am not arguing that set and setting are not important, but a hospital room with a doctor in a lab coat is hardly recreating the perfect resonance of nature, which is what ancient temples were attempting to create in stone. So, if we're going to liberate the plants and the fungi, we have to liberate the people to use them as they see fit. There will always be a need for teachers and guides. But if they're hidden behind complicated initiations and ceremonies and institutions, locked doors and levels of hierarchy, then all we're doing is perpetuating the harmful ways that brought us here in the first place. I'm reminded as I'm putting this together of my mushroom journey earlier this year the one with all the snakes in the tunnels there was another important message that was shared as image after image of religious persecution flashed across my inner vision. And that was that anything from source is simple. God is simple. We want to make it complicated and have made it complicated. We think that we're somehow not getting it when a message is simple. There must be more to it than that, right? But no, The golden ratio is a formula that repeats all around us. It's simple. It's beautiful. And our earliest ancestors recognized that for what it was, the perfection of our creation. If you lean over to deeply inhale the fragrance of a rose blooming on a warm summer's day, you would see it reflected right there in front of you. And you might think, ah, the perfection of nature. You didn't need to know the math. You could see the beauty of the formula right there in front of you. And the plant and fungi kingdoms help to open up our doors of perception to bring even more of that beauty into our daily lives. No temple, no tithing required. Just a mushroom or a plant that you might find growing in your backyard. Available to everyone, regardless of their gender, race, religion, or class. Simple. And I'll leave you with that thought for the rest of the week. Thanks to the very mysterious and anonymous YouTube channel, Folks0904, for sharing the 2014 interview with Richard Merrick you heard in this episode. I'll link to the full interview as well as Richard's website in the show notes. Thank you for listening this week. Thanks for being here on the earth at this moment in time. And I'll see you back here next Tuesday.